So we're glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us. And here we are smack dab in the middle of summer. And here we sang Christmas carols. And really we have a message series that some would say would fit better somewhere around Easter. And yet that is not when we're doing it. We're doing it right now. But, but as I said, I think last Sunday night, as far as I can remember, I've never preached a series of messages on this important topic. And truly, really the last word. Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And, and, and it's, G, it's a little bit deeper than the words. It goes beyond just the words. It goes, beyond the, it goes to the foundation of those words and other implications and examples of the Lord Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. Well, I was, you know, I was, sometimes I'm naive, I admit that. And so earlier on in the week, I decided, you know, they always say the introduction is one of the most important parts of the message because you, you hang people, you, you hook them. And so I said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just go on the internet and get me some famous last words. That'll be a good introduction. Well, I found out that didn't quite go according to plan. You know, there's not a lot of famous last words out there that are worth repeating. In fact, some of them I can't repeat in church. Um, but anyway, but I did find several that I thought were quite unusual. Uh, let me go back about 125, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe 40 years, yeah, 140 years, and to Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin said this when he died. He said, I'm not afraid in the least to die. I'm not afraid in the least to die. Of which I would say, hey, Charlie... Listen, it's not death you have to worry about. It's what happens after you die. And uh, if you don't know Jesus, well, you'll hear about that probably next week there. And then let's go back and oh, let's grab a hold of Joan Crawford. Now, for the younger folks, Joan Crawford was a very famous uh, actress uh, through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s before she retired. And she was quite famous. And her famous last words were, and again, part of this I can't say in church because she cursed but her worker, her health worker there, was praying for her as she lay dying. And she said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Yeah, go Joan. Oof. And then there's Bob Hope. And again, for the younger people, in case you don't know who Bob Hope, he's just about one of the most famous comedians there ever was. And, and I'm not sure why this came up, but his wife asked him as he lay dying, where would you like to be buried? And he said, surprise me. <laughs> Sounds like Bob Hope, doesn't it? All right, okay, okay. Winston Churchill, again, you have to go back in history to get some of these. Uh, Winston Churchill, World War II famous uh, statesman for England. Uh, he was 90 years old and lay dying. And he said, I'm just bored with all of this. Go Winston Churchill. Quite profound. Then, um, how about Charlie Berger? Yeah, this actually came up. Now, let me just take about a, one second here and give you a little background. Um, when we eat at the barbecue barn, you know, there's a picture there hanging on the wall, and it's of Charlie Berger fixing to be hanging. Now, Charlie Berger was a gangster in the 1930s, uh, famous, definitely in southern Illinois, um, had, I think, the Shady Rest place where he would do his business, his illegal alcohol business. And uh, they got him finally, murdered a lot of guys, a lot of people, and, and his gang did. And um, so they were going to hang him in Benton Square. And there's a picture of that down at the courtroom, courthouse. And there's one in the barbecue barn if you'd like to see that. But, but what's unusual is right, you know, the nuke is around the nuke. The, you know, he's going to get nuke. 
nuked, all right. The noose is around his neck, and he's just sitting there laughing and smiling, you know. And, and my friend Tim said, you know, do you think, what is that? And he says, you think it was a defense mechanism? I really think it was. It's probably some kind of a defense mechanism. Um, but anyway, so his last words spoken were, um, isn't it, it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. And then to jump finally into the, more modern scene, Steve Jobs. Of course, Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple Computers, and uh, Steve was really profound. In his last words, he said, and I quote, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then he died. Isn't that profound? I'm not sure if he was seeing the oh, wow. Well, I have a feeling I think I do know which oh, wow he was seeing. And it wasn't oh, wow in that great. It's oh, wow. <laughs> it's not great. All right. So there's a lot of people with last words out there. But amazingly, there are a lot of like presidents who didn't have any last great words. In fact, no last words were recorded. But with Jesus, we've got this incredible collection of sayings because of the Bible that he spoke as he lay dying or as he lay hanging on the cross. And seven times he spoke that are recorded in the word of God. And each one of them is just so rich. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these sayings, these words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he spoke them. Now, I'd like to begin this morning in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 and 33. Luke chapter 23, 32 and 33. And it sets us up for the crucifixion scene. Now, you might say, well, Dwayne, no offense, honestly, pastor, but we know the story. We've been in church all of our lives. We really know the story of how gruesome it was and how grisly it was and all those different things. You really don't need to tell us again. Yes, I do. <laughs> I really do because I think so often it's become old hat to us. That, that has become old hat to us. And that's one reason why. But the other reason is this, is the, the cross, the, the circumstances of the cross amplify the words of the cross. The circumstances of the cross magnify, amplify the words of the cross. You probably didn't realize this, but I wear this little hickey thing around my ear and it magnifies my voice so you can hear me. If you notice the guys playing the guitars, different ones here, every one of them have a little wire sticking in the end of the guitar. And if David was to pluck his guitar and just without that little wire, you sitting about halfway back, you couldn't even hear what he was playing. But because of that wire, there's electrical current going through and it goes to our speaker system, our, our PA system, and it amplifies the sound. Well, the circumstances of the cross just shouts the meaning of the words of, of the cross that the Lord Jesus spoke. And so it's important that we go back and look at this magnification system, this amplification system called the cross. Now, it starts out in verse number 32, and it says... Two others who were criminals. And I remember last time I talked to you about this, I really made a big deal to point that out. That notice it says two others who were criminals. Because there were not three criminals on, on three crosses. There were two criminals, um, definitely guilty of murder and sedition, uh, insurrection, no doubt about that. But the man in the middle was not only not a criminal, he was not even a sinner. I mean, not only he had not, I mean, even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man, you know. So, so he was not only not a criminal, he had never 
even sin. But two of them were criminals, Luke tells us. And they were led away to be put to death with him. In verse 33, and they, when they came to the place that is called the skull, the skull. Now, this has been lost to history, the exact location. In 1997, I was fortunate enough to go to the Holy Land, and, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place that they have, all built beautiful temple over it, and think, some people think that's it. But there's another place outside of town that seems like a much more likely place, and it looks like the, the cranium of a person's head, the skull, if you will. Um, in one place in Scripture, it's called Golgotha, and another place, it's called Gabbatha. Um, from the Latin term, uh, Calvea, we get our word Calvary. They all are the same place. And what you need to know about this place was it was a place of execution. It was a place of execution. Men were taken there to die. Men did not leave Golgotha, Gabbatha, or Calvary alive. So when the two men plus Jesus were led to this place called the skull, they were not going to leave alive. They were going to be uh, they were going to face a group of executioners that knew exactly what they were doing. You probably need to understand that by this time um, Jesus had been up all of Thursday night. He had not slept. They arrested him sometime late Thursday night. They drug him down to the temple, to the high priest's house, and there he was grilled and given a false trial, slapped around, spit upon, all these different things, drugged before Pilate that morning um, before another false presentation, false trial. Again, Pilate said, I find no fault with this man. He wanted to release him, did not have the courage to do so, and fearing what Rome might say if there was a riot he went ahead and had him crucified. Before he crucified him, he had him scourged. And, and again, if you saw the movie The Passion of Christ, that is probably the best depiction of what you would see in a scourging. As a cat of nine tails with, with bone and stones embedded in the leather, literally stripped away the flesh off the man. So, so the fact that Jesus survived the scourging is probably, probably an act of God's mercy and grace in itself because Jesus had an appointment with Golgotha. Jesus had an appointment with Golgotha. Most men scourged this way would not have survived, would not have survived. So all this has already happened to Jesus. And then Luke, in just, in just four simple words in our English, says this. They took him to the place of the skull, and there they crucified him. There they crucified him. I toyed with the idea. I was going to say that crucifixion was a horrific way to die. I finally wrote down in my sermon sheet, my little note here, uh, crucifixion was a terrible way to die. But I figure if my commentary said it this way, then I could probably use it today. The commentary said crucifixion was a hellish waste, way to die. It was... The most horrific infliction of pain and mutilation on a human body ever devised. I've shared this before, but I know, I understand because I don't remember everything, so I'm sure you don't remember everything. You remember I told you crucifixion was so bad, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. Crucifixion 
though obviously you're going to see was discussed in the Roman or in the Jewish households, it was not discussed in pleasant company in Roman households. It was just a horrible way to die. And they take them there, these three men, and they crucify them. And I think, again, I know you know the story, but please, for those who may not, they would lay the, the across. And by the way, I was surprised. I really hadn't thought about this. It's not like there was a, a manual on crucifixion. Every execution team had their own way of doing things. And so, again, the Christian cross, and we intentionally made this Christian cross with a shorter beam across because a lot of times, most theologians will believe and historians, a lot of times there was not the upper piece. There was just the cross that made like a T. Um, for them there. We've really added the upper part because the scripture says that they posted above his head the inscription, this is the king of the Jews. And so we felt like perhaps it needed to be added, although they could have really put a stick up there and nailed it on and did the inscription that away. But, but sometimes it looked like this. Sometimes it was a T. Um, when Jesus carried his cross up to Calvary, to Golgotha, to Gabbatha, it was the cross beam part. And again, it probably would have even been bigger than this, this way, and perhaps even thicker. And so he was forced to embrace it and hold it and drag it along. He did not carry the entire cross. He would just carry the cross beam. And then they would take ropes and hoist this cross beam up with the poles up on Calvary. They would hoist it up and latch it on. So that's most likely the scenario that happened. They would take and they would drive the nails through the... But again, there's no manual, um, but through the meaty part of the wrist here and here. And this, this did a couple of things. It was a way of attaching them to the cross, but also um, allowed for massive blood loss and it would speed up the death. And, and it's not that they were trying to show mercy to the criminals. It's just that they didn't want to work overtime. You know, one of the things we saw when we saw the movie... Um, what was the name of the, Risen, you know, the the soldiers were glad when they said break the legs because soldiers had to stay with the criminals until they died. Everybody else could leave the rest of the Roman contingency. But those responsible for taking them off the cross had to stay. If you remember in the movie, you saw the movie. The, it just really, it still grips me today when the Roman soldier is just saying, go ahead, take one last breath. Go ahead, there, there, easy. Just take one more breath, urging him to hurry and die. And as soon as the last breath was taken, he knocks the cross down, pulls the nails out, and drags the body and throws it into the pile and the pile of dead bodies. So that was just the way it was done. So they drove the nails into the to hands, and in most accounts, also through the feet. And again, that that beam would have been hoisted up, and he would have hung there um, before everyone. A part we don't like to think, but he was hung naked. Every indication we have, uh, not only from the gambling, the, uh, gambling for his garments, but he was naked before the world. We always put a loincloth on. Chances are that was not the case. See, that, and all this is hard. It causes us to push back. Um, because I meant to bring the Christian flag over here. Because on top of the Christian flag, we had this really, really nice gold cross. And that's our cross of preference. When we think about the old rugged cross, that's our cross of preference. But our cross, the real cross, would be one, again, similar to this, but it would have been saturated not only with the blood of Jesus, the blood of men before him, because it was used over and over and over again. 
It was grisly. It was horrific. It was bloody. It was horrible. And that's the setup and the scene that we have for these magnificent words that Jesus is going to be speak. So he said, so there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the left and one on the right. Now, if you're a churchy person, you might remember that James and John went to Jesus and said, hey, can we have the position when you come in your glory, one on your left and one on your right? And Jesus said, you're, you can't drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Oh, we can drink it. You will indeed drink it, uh, he said later on. But I find it ironic that now on his left and right, the disciples are not to be found. But two criminals are, one on his left and one on his right. So can you somehow imagine uh, the situation, the, the circumstances where our Savior now hangs? Death would come, in his case, uh, about six hours. He was pulling the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So about six hours. Um, The nails did not kill him. The spear was done after to make sure he was dead. He suffocated. Many believe his heart exploded. Again, that was suffocation was the cause of death because you reach a point where you cannot pull up any longer to breathe and you simply suffocate to death. So that's the situation. And by the way, let me just say it now very, very clearly. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for you. You, you are the primary purpose of the crucifixion because he loved you so much. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Again, I always like to say it wasn't a martyr situation. Um, It wasn't a plan gone bad. It was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world was laid. And he did it for you. So that leads us into Luke 23, 34, the first part. We have the first of seven words. And again, one of the commentaries said this, and I never thought of it this way. But he said of all the words, the writer said, of all the words that Jesus ever spoke, these perhaps are the most amazing. Of all the words... That Jesus ever spoke. These are perhaps the most amazing. So you ask yourself, why? And here's, again, with that set up, men have taken and driven spikes through his wrist. Men have spit upon him. Men have slapped him. Men have scourged him. The religious leaders have connived against him. The Jewish people have turned their back on him. His disciples have fled. And here's what he says. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Now, out here somewhere is probably the big question, which I'm not prepared to answer today, is that does God forgive sins of ignorance? That's not really the topic, I don't believe, here anyway. But that's a question that would certainly pose here because of his words, for they know not what they do. The the thing we want to zoom in on that really matters is that at the heart of God is forgiveness. 
at the heart of God is forgiveness. And he says, and it's not just forgiveness, but it's forgiving them. Let's go through it one more time. You know, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And, and if his hands were free and we said to Jesus, what them are you talking about? And he could point to the religious leaders who for the last, really probably the entire, almost since the time he went public, but definitely in the last year, year and a half, they really wanted to kill him. They, they got up in the morning and their first thought was, how can we kill Jesus? He would point to them and say, that's them. The ones who lied about him. The ones who found someone who betrayed him. The one who went to Pilate and said, if you don't kill this man, we will tell Rome you're not doing your job. The ones who did nothing but scheme for his demise. He would point to them and said, them. And this amazing man named Jesus Ask the Father to forgive them. Is that not amazing? Is that not amazing? And then, and then, if he, if again, if we caught him earlier and, and we could, his hands were free, and we would say again, well, who is the them? Around the foot of the cross would have been a large crowd of Jewish people. I know this sounds harsh, but it's true. It was a form of grisly entertainment. You'd gather the family up and the kids up and say, let's go to Golgotha and watch somebody die today. And that group of them, a week before, about five days, six days earlier, on Palm Sunday, as he came into Jerusalem, were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed be the son of David, as, Jer- as Jesus came into Jerusalem. That same crowd who was praising him, that same crowd who enjoyed free bread and fish one day. Some in that crowd, well, I pray not, but some of that crowd certainly had, had seen miracles. They had seen miracles. You know, the song says, when I came out of that grave, he called my name, reference to Lazarus. Lazarus wasn't there. But people had seen Lazarus resurrected. Now stand at the foot of the cross. They stood in Pilate's, court, Pilate's courtyard and said, and said, crucify him. Let Barabbas go. Crucify him. And we would say, Jesus, you won't forgive them? And Jesus says, that's the them. And that's amazing. That's amazing. And certainly, the very men, the very men who had just driven nails through his wrist, the men who had scourged his back, exposing his internal organs and his ribs, the men who had hoisted him up on the cross, the men who goaded him as he tried to carry this cross beam, to Calvary, to Golgotha. They are part of the them. Every participant in that event that day, and non-participant, 
Perhaps, who knows, he may have somehow included the disciples because they weren't there. Where were the, where were the men supporting the hero? And, of course, we talked about it a few weeks ago. And we kind of got a different glimpse of that. I understand that. But they weren't there. But the leaders, the people, the Roman soldiers. Jesus says these amazing words. Father, forgive them. Because at the heart of God is forgiveness. And if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, someone promised you free lunch. You don't go to church. You haven't been doing church. You don't do the church. You see enough church where you say, I don't want any part of church because people go to church. They think they're better than me and they're just like me. You need to hear something today. That at the heart of God, the creator God, the real God, is a heart of your forgiveness. This was all about forgiveness. This was all about a man, a woman, a child, or a student could come into relationship with Creator God. That the barrier of sin that had separated them from God could finally be torn down by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die for my sin, your sin, our sin, the sins of the world. And we could not die for our own because we were guilty. It had to be innocent blood. And this was the innocent blood. This is it. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he was living out the heart, his heart, and the heart of the Father. I want to tell you something. I know, again, if you're here today, you're listening on the radio, or, or you're here today and you're doing the lunch thing, you know, you're here. I want you to understand something. Part of your, part of your pushback from God is non-authentic Christians. I know that. People who say, look how good I am, and then you see them out, and they're not. We call them hypocrites. I know that. But I want to tell you that Jesus Christ was so authentic. He was the real deal. The real deal. Um, You know, there's a southern gospel song. You could take any combination of words or circumstances, and they can write a great southern gospel song about it. And a while back, about 15, 20 years ago, I guess, I lose track of time, someone wrote a song, I believe it was a gospel song, southern gospel song about this, and it said this, I would rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. And you hear a lot of sermons. But most people don't want to hear a sermon. They want to see one. And Jesus lived out in total authenticity his, his statements that he made about life. I want you to listen from Luke chapter 6. Now remember, nails in the wrist, can't breathe, scourged, beaten, on a cross, Father, forgive them. Here's what he said in Luke chapter 6. Speaking to people. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully 
use you. That's authenticity. He lived out what he said. And the worst of circumstances, this genuine, authentic Savior of the world backs up what he preaches. How incredible is that? So, what can we learn from the cross? What can we learn? And depending on what translation you have, it's 10 words, 11 words, or 12 words. But, but what can we learn from the man hanging on the cross as he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. What can we learn? What can we take away? Now, earlier in the week, I tried to really bring this into our lives from the perspective of how we should. Frankly, if you nail me to a cross, I'm not going to be too forgiving. If you scourge my back, I'm not spiritual enough to forgive you. So I had to take a different route. Because I tried not to preach things I'm not doing. Try to avoid that. So here's where I ended up. You know, again, forgiveness is at the heart of God. Listen to what Peter said. Peter was one of his followers who, who would, did betray him, would later be restored, and God used him in a great way in the church. But here's what Peter said. It's a verse you've probably heard before. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Peter says. I know Peter says, now I know it seems like God said something and he's not pulled it off yet. So don't think he's forgotten. But is patient toward you, not wishing that not wishing that any, any, any should perish, but it all should reach repentance. That's what this was about. He's not willing for you to perish. He's not willing for those Roman soldiers to perish. Take the worst person you could think of, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gives every man, woman, child the opportunity to come in repentance to him. And he did it through that. Not our performance, not our good works, not our religious, not our church attendance. None of that would have made a difference. He did it through that. Father, yes, amen. Amen. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Truly, God does love the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thursday night before He died Friday, we had the scene of the upper room. And Jesus is having Passover and fixed into what we now call the Lord's Supper on Thursday night. And there in that room, he says, he takes a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said, Tomorrow I'm going to spill my blood, and it's for many, and for the forgiveness of sins.
So at the heart, no matter what you think of God, I'm going to speak truth to you today. At the heart of God is forgiveness. He loves you. How much? It says it all. It says it all. Secondly, God's forgiveness knows no limits. God's forgiveness knows no limits. This is pretty incredible. When Jesus had a cousin whose name was John, and he was kind of like the, the, the billboard, the forerunner for Jesus before he really took out on his public ministry. He kind of cleared the way for Jesus to come and begin his public ministry. And then John was arrested because he told the truth. That's coming in our country. But he was arrested for speaking the truth by Herod. John gets in prison, gets a little discouraged. <laughs> he was befuddled sometimes like we're befuddled with Jesus. I think he probably looked at Jesus and Jesus, he was, Jesus, uh, John was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. And here's Jesus eating with sinners and stuff. And I think John probably reached a point where he goes, what is going on? This does not look like what I thought it was going to look like. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and says this, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Because what I'm seeing right now doesn't really look like what I thought this Messiah deal was going to look like. Should we look for somebody else? And here's what Jesus said. This is Matthew eleven four. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, let me just help you real quick because we don't have a lot of time. But let me give you a, a, a shortened version of that. Every one of those, the, the blind, the lame, the leprosy, the deaf, the dead, and the poor, were all scarred and broken the religious establishment would look at these people and go, blind man, you're not welcome. You're broken and scarred. Lame man, you're not broken. Leprosy, you're certainly not welcome. Hey, deaf man, you're not welcome. Hey, dead man, well, you're certainly not welcome. And Jesus says, go back and tell John that the broken and scarred people of the world are being ministered to. I don't know where you are today, but let me speak this first. If you're here today, and again, you're here for the free lunch, you're here, somebody invites you to church, you decide to give God a shot, I don't care what you've done. God's love and grace is sufficient for you. No matter how broken you think you are, no matter how scarred you are from a wretched past, God loves you and His grace is sufficient for you. God's love and grace... God's love and grace knows no limits. It knows no limits. Hear that and believe that today. Because I know someone's going, gone too far. You don't know what I've done. It don't matter what you've done. 
God's grace is sufficient for you. And by the way, just in case you forgot, if you are a Jesus follower and Satan's been beating you up because you've got some failures since you've been saved, got good news for you. His grace is still sufficient for you. His grace doesn't stop with salvation. It walks with us throughout our lives. No matter what, His grace is sufficient. It has no limits. But here's the deal. It does require a response. Just because Jesus prayed, Father, forgive, that forgiveness is not put on account until there's a public or to a, to a personal response to that. Jesus didn't automatically guarantee the salvation of the leaders and the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers by praying that prayer. Because God's forgiveness demands a response. And guess what? He needs a response from you. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. That was all about your forgiveness. But you have to make a personal response. It can't be your grandma. It can't be your mama. God has no grandkids, they say sometimes. Listen, you don't, you don't sneak in some other way. I'm telling you, you need to respond to what Jesus Christ did in a personal way. Not because your wife told you to, not because your mom and daddy told you to, but because you've come to a conclusion that you understand that you have sinned against a holy God and that short of Jesus' intervention, you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And there's nothing you can do with that except receive what He's already done. And that involves you going in one direction, turning away from that, and choosing to follow Jesus Christ. That's what it meant to repent, to turn away from and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It demands a response. Here's how, here's how it's, it's put in the Bible in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, before some theologian gets there and says, Dwayne, that verse is written to Christians. Yes, I know it is. I know it is. But the truth applies to lost people too. The same thing applies. If we are willing to confess our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time, He will forgive our sins. He will forgive our sins. But you've got to ask. It demands a response. Acts 3.19, once again, Peter preaching says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, obliterated, that times of refreshing may come. And the last thing about forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is always God's initiative, not ours. Forgiveness is always God's initiative. This whole thing, this, this mangled, bloody cross was God's initiative. We did nothing to deserve the sacrifice on the cross. Nor could you. Nor could you. It's always God's initiative. God took the step. You know, we love Him because He first loved us. I know it's incredible. I mean, we hear from too many pulpits in America somehow that if we perform enough, God will show us His favor. You can't earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor. 
But he will gladly grant that favor as a free gift to you, regardless of your past, if you'll put your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on a Roman cross. You can't leave this without Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, and that word in the Greek means hopeless and helpless. While we were still hopeless and helpless, at the right time, now listen, listen, don't miss this. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not just those that may say, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty religious. I'm a righteous dude. No, he died for the ungodly. And Paul says in Romans 5 again, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God, this God that we can't figure out, with a message we can't believe, with a Savior that we can't describe, but God demonstrates His love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? So today, if you're here and you're broken and you're scarred, grace says, come home. Grace says, come home. If you look and there's more baggage in your past, you're wanting suitcases. If you look in your past and there's nothing but baggage and suitcases of regret and consequences and sin, grace says, come on home. Come on home. Grace even says to the person who's trusted Jesus but got discouraged and got brokenhearted and walked away from God, God didn't walk away from you. And grace says, come on home. Come on home. And all that message is possible and made clear by a man dying on a cross who had every right to condemn those who had done this to him. And authenticity said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that would be Jesus' words to you today. I want to forgive you. All you have to do is respond and to come. And we have a time of decision every week. And this decision involves several things, but decision time involves several things. But one is I'm going to have my friend Brent standing down here. And every week we give you the invitation to come and learn more. I know you've got questions. I didn't answer them all today. In fact, I may have caused more questions than, than you had when you walked in. But we've got some friends who will take the Word of God and show you exactly what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To come into relationship with Holy God. To come and have your sins forgiven. To have Jesus' prayer, if you will, applied to you. And the team's going to be singing in just a moment. We're going to have you stand. I know there's a few people here today. But just going to say, Brent, I want to know more about this. Or maybe after the service even. The time doesn't close when the time closes. I want to know more about this. Maybe you're here today and, and you're broken and scarred. 
You just need to know that God loves you. And he will forgive whatever's broken and scarred in your life. Maybe you're here today and you're a child of God. But you've also kind of walked away. Maybe you kind of forgot that. And today God's taking this opportunity to remind you. And you just need to tell God, God, thank you for reminding me how much you love me. And how you want to forgive me. Grace says, come home. Come home. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, my. What a privilege it is to share this message, Father. Thank you so very, very much for an old rugged cross, but most importantly, the Savior who hung on it. We understand your word says without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal, no remission of sin. And Jesus, I thank you you shed your blood. I thank you for the words you prayed. Father, forgive them. And how it's just authenticated by your words earlier in your life when you said, love your enemies. You taught it. You lived it. And you lived it for us. So, Lord, this is your time. Holy Spirit, draw people uh, to this wondrous Savior today. Cause men and women and children to want to know Jesus Christ as Savior, to acknowledge their sin and to want to know Jesus and what he did. Have your way in our time together. And, Father, if some other need a prayer request or a desire to join our church or recommit lives today, This is all your time, and I pray, Father, you'll have your way. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name.